You're listening to TIP. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this Wednesday's release of the show where we're talking about Bitcoin. So today's guest is probably the biggest name in the entire Bitcoin space, and that's Dr. Adam Back. Dr. Back is the inventor of proof of work, which is one of the key components of the Bitcoin code base. In fact, Satoshi Nakamoto's original Bitcoin white paper referenced Dr. Back for his key contributions to make the blockchain even possible. Beyond his initial contributions, Dr. Back is the co-founder and CEO of Blockstream, which is a company that's a leader in innovation and foresight for the entire Bitcoin ecosystem. During this discussion, Dr. Back talks about some of his early discoveries, his opinion on proof of work and why it's important, some of the new initiatives at Blockstream to bring more mining capacity to North America, his opinion on the Bitcoin contango trade, and much, much more. So without further delay, here's my chat with the one and only Dr. Adam Back. You're listening to Bitcoin Fundamentals by The Investors Podcast Network. Now for your host, Preston Pish. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. Here I am with the one and only Adam Back. Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. So Adam, I think the question I've been dying to ask you is just your discovery of proof of work for me is mind-blowing. And it's mind-blowing that this was incorporated straight into the white paper. Satoshi referenced you in the white paper. And I just try to put myself in your shoes and going back to the moment where you discovered this and kind of like what led up to it when you discovered it and you started to write about it. Like, what kind of utility did you think that it had at that time or at that moment? Just explain that moment to us as you discovered this. I was running an anonymous remailer. So I, I got interested in cryptography and privacy and basically deploying technology allowed users to exercise their rights. And so on the online world. And so I was running this remailer and at that time, this is the late 90s, obviously still today, there was a recurring problem with spam where people would send bulk unsolicited mail, probably with a one in a million conversion rate. But hey, you know, sending an email was practically free. And it's kind of a bane, you know, most people's, anybody operating a mail server individually or as a company, the majority of the email that they were processing was spam. And it's also a nuisance for users to, they have to sift through all this stuff to find the actual emails. And so that was going on in the background, but my particular concern was operating this remailer to get privacy. And it also had the ability to post to Usenet discussion groups, kind of uh, broadcast decentralized kind of uh, mailing list like technology chat forums. It seemed that there were people that were sending spam through the remailers, particularly to these discussion groups. And you know, once it hit these discussion groups, the Usenet technology broadcasts that across thousands of servers all over the world. So it's actually a way to amplify a, den a denial of service. And it, it wasn't even commercial spam. It was just looked like random numbers and things. And talking amongst people who operate remailers on a cypherpunks list, our best theory was that people that were doing this were you know, pro-establishment, anti-privacy, and just wanted to annoy the administrators of Usenet servers oh. so that they would try to block remailers. So it seemed like an anti-privacy kind of, you know, create some nuisance so that there would be a blowback against remailers because people were spamming with it. So anyway, it was a kind of um, 
background problem then for removers. Like, well, what do we do about this? And so usually what people do about spam is they put their system administrator hat on and they think, well, I'm the super user, which is more the case in those days, you know, big servers and not that many powerful desktops and laptops. And they would block IP addresses, block email addresses. But the actual protocol on the permissionless internet is there isn't really any concept of, you know, super user and regular user. Once you get onto the IP network, everybody is the same, right? So it struck me this was a bad and dangerous direction because it was pushing towards the internet driver's license concepts, which resurfaces once in a while, you know, people want real names or personal information in order to get a cell phone contract or an internet connection. And so the whole point of the remailers was that you should have privacy in communicating person to person and particularly in discussion forums. So I had to look at the spam problem in it from a different direction, which is, well, the blocking identities and IP addresses isn't, isn't really a solution. It's kind of losing arms race. And anyway, dear, it's trending in a, in a bad direction. What's the root problem? So the root problem is, well, email is practically free. So, so I was thinking, well, people on the Cypherpunk Explosive were already pretty excited and interested in electronic cash, but it was difficulties bootstrapping it because it relied on banking partner and that kind of thing. So some of the electronic cash protocols then were kind of centralized, you know, there would be a central server with a double spend uh, like David Chom's protocol and some other ones, a similar design. And actually, you know, PayPal didn't exist. Uh, getting a credit card merchant processing account was difficult, complicated, and anyway, not, not a fit for sending private mails because identity. And it would also exclude lots of people, right? So, you know, billions of people in the world don't have credit cards and couldn't get a credit card merchant processing account, don't want to put their ID on things. And somebody's financial well-being where they're happy to send a 10 cents or a dollar to send a message, maybe that's expensive for somebody. And we want to have a, a global even discussion on Usenet about a wide range of topics. And so that's where, well, we can't use the banking rails. We can't pay them. So it's complicated. But could we at least add a cost to the sender? And so I had coincidentally been looking at hash collisions. So there's, there's this concept called a birthday paradox where if you, if you pick a room of people and you say, what is the chance that two people say, share the same birthday, it's a much lower number than you expect, just a kind of statistical anomaly or counterintuitive fact. So with the hash functions such as SHA-1, SHA-256, similar kind of thing applies, except the cost, you know, you'd have to try lots of hashes until you find two that collide to the same output. The work to do that is impractical. You could run all the computers in the world until sun builds out and probably wouldn't find one or something. So if you did have one, if somebody from the far future came back and gave you one, you could instantly verify it in you know, a few yeah. thousand CPU cycles. So I thought that was a fascinating concept, which, which relates, right? Which is, well, you can prove that work was expended, but this is far too expensive. So maybe we can tune it and like modify the design of what's going on so that you can make it tunably expensive and still instantly verifiable. And so that's, that's where Hashcash came from. And because it was for store and forward, like a, a communication mechanism where there's not you know, a client and a server interacting, where the, where the server says, please answer this challenge, and then you, you, know, you solve a capture and you send it back. I mean, a capture being another kind of thing that's used for this. But there's no client and server, it's broadcast, and the reader is not online at the same time as the sender, that kind of thing. So it was necessary for the 
for the sender to make a proof using a challenge that he chose himself that made it a genuine proof rather than a, something that convinces only a server. It's a transferable proof. Anybody can verify that the person that posted this discussion comment spent a cent of electrical power doing so or something. So when you said that you had to tune it, is this really similar to what we see with the difficulty adjustment where it gets easier, or it gets harder, depending on how much hashing power we see is on the network? Is that what you're talking about when you're saying you had to tune it? Yeah, it's exactly the same. So with uh, the hash cash kind of email postage stamp, I had set it to 20 bits, which is about a million tries. So with, and that was a kind of fixed difficulty, but I had the concept that the verifier should increase the minimum postage they would accept every few years as, as CPUs got faster. And, you know, people started to do that. And so that is the difficulty adjustment. And of course, these are relatively cheap. It's in the context of electronic cash. Curiously, you know, when I posted this on the Cypherpunks list and the crypto lists in 1997, it's in a context where people were pretty excited. You know, electronic cash, David Chom's eCash system was you know, top of mind and a very exciting potential for the world sort of thing. Kind of Bitcoin-like vibe, but on a far smaller scale. But it was centralized and it was difficult to bootstrap. And so a lot of people looked at this and said, wow, this is this is interesting. It's like artificial scarcity. It's like digital gold. And then start, you know, started having discussions about, well, how could you control the inflation? They were sort of hypothesizing that with Moore's law and an incentive to, you know, if you could do mining with this to create coins, that people would go nuts and make a ridiculous amount of coins and that would erode and make it difficult to have a stable value. Mm-hmm. And so I think people were. And you know, by 1998, there were two kind of more more detailed proposals being Weidai's B-Money and Nick Sabo's Bitgold, which both used this proof of work and proposed ways to have a stable value, as it were, or a market set value, but in a, in a kind of federated model with human market makers or sort of a council or super node set of power users that would decide how much work was needed and, or how many coins were going to be issued in the epoch, things like that. So if you scroll forward to 2008, when Satoshi started sharing drafts of the Bitcoin paper, it seemed to me that he'd cracked the one thing that people hadn't figured out how to do back then, which was, you know, in hindsight, it looks simple, but it's to say, well, let's not try to target a stable value, but let's instead target a predictable supply curve and let the market worry about the value. And that, it turns out, is technically possible to do inside a distributed system with no you know, human uh, councils or super nodes and governance and deciding how many coins per epoch and that kind of thing. It was funny, this Johns Hopkins professor that just keeps on bagging on Bitcoin just published an article, I think it was in CNN just this past week, where he was talking about these these governance structures. And I'm thinking to myself, dude, the entire point of this is to not have a governance, some people involved in the loop of managing this. It's like, how can, how can people not see that this, I mean, it, Bitcoin is many things, but like that is one of the chief things that like this is all about is not having that. It's just crazy. Even some Bitcoin technologists Technical commentators will talk about governance by which they mean the change process within Bitcoin. But I personally take exception to that terminology 
you know, there is no governance. The change process within Bitcoin is opt-in, backwards compatible optimization and features. And there's certainly no economic or core system metrics that are that there's any plausible governance discussion to be had about. So Bitcoin has no governance, I would say. You know, some Consensus. other altcoins. Yeah. I mean, you know, Ethereum has governance because there's a group of people that are sort of graph somewhere off the supply curve and it, it's all over the place. <laughs> there's labels on it where different people decided different things, right? So I think um, actually plan B said something interesting as a way to explain this because because it's mathematical and software, people have difficulty understanding why it's inviolable. Like they think, well, you know, the software could be changed. And his analogy was that the, um, you know, it's, it's a game of chess, the game of chess. You could yeah. change the rules, but nobody will play with you if you do, right? So you could, you could make a modified piece of software with a different number of coins per block or something, and nobody's interested in playing that game. So the economic consensus just continues. So Adam, going back to the discovery here, what is the time frame when you get this aha moment about proof of work? Prior to even Hashcash, where you were just like, I think this might solve this problem. What, where are we at in the timeline? That was in May 1997, I think. And I'd been reading about these hash collisions on Usenet, coincidentally, on a, on a crypto list, and kind of found it interesting. I was looking at the mathematics of it. In the background, there's this ongoing spam war waging in general email and a bit of it creating a kind of a political problem for remailers, which I was one of the operators of a remailer. And so it occurred to me, I spent, I don't know, probably two or three days thinking about design variants of how to do it. And then I was thinking, well, I could, I could post this. This is interesting. I think this would be the right design variant to use. And I thought, well, you know, in the ICF process, you should have running code first. So I shut up and wrote the code for a couple of days and I posted it. <laughs> and, and so it was, you know, here's the code, here's a description of how it works. And that was on a mailing list. And there's lots of discussion, you know, people integrate it into remailers and actually into a, into a lot of different things. Even pseudonyms, sort of cost to create a persistent pseudonym, which is a bit like vanity addresses in Bitcoin. And as sort of storage denial of service protection and distributed file systems. And actually, over time, uh, Spam Assassin, which is a common kind of ISP grade anti-spam filter, added support for hash cache postage stamps in the headers. So it would give you some negative scoring. So it, it's trying to grade is this spam. So it looked for spamminess metrics. And you know, if, if it had make money fast, plus 20 to the score, this is probably spam, right? Had a valid hash cache header in it, big negative. This is not spam, right? So it would protect you from being falsely categorized as spam, which happens too, right? So they did that on the server side, and uh, Microsoft made system as well and integrated it into their whole suite of email things, you know, the clients, the Outlook mail server, mail, things like that. But their, their protocol was essentially the same thing, but a slightly different format. So it wasn't cross compatible. That was that kind of technology. I didn't get actually get around to writing a paper describing it more formally until about five years later. I'm more generally more interested in building and deploying action things. Yeah. <laughs> You're interested in action and, and actually doing it. I love yeah. that theme about you. 
And I've seen you post that on Twitter from time to time. It's like, hey, we can sit around and talk about things or we can actually create this and get things done. And that's a cool story that you're, that you're kind of showing that that's what you did from the very early days is that you coded it out and you put it out there before you really kind of even formally described what, in, what was actually happening with the code that you were publishing. I want to summarize something and just correct me if, if my understanding of this is wrong, but when I think about what this discovery really kind of meant, this proof of work discovery, and especially how it applies today, I was taking this online course. I think it was like this free Princeton course. It was like 70 hours just teaching you like all the nuances of like how Bitcoin works behind the scenes. I don't fully understand the encryption. I know that the mathematics to take SHA-256 make it applicable so that if there's five people running five processors and the difficulty is being scaled down for SHA-256, that math to do that to me is, is just a mind-blowing event. Like That's just like, I can't imagine trying to program or work out the math on how you would figure out statistically how to adjust SHA-256, which like you had said earlier, you could have all the processors in the world running on it till the sun goes out and you're not going to have this event where you have where you're having the same uh, input produce the same output right so when when you're thinking about scaling that difficulty down to now there's five people guessing and they can they can figure it out in, in a 10 minute time period the math that's associated with doing that scaling down to me is is an amazing feat and that's pretty much what your proof of work discovery was all about is what I just described is that an accurate description of how you would put it into layman's terms for people that are kind of listening to what this means and how it how it's really kind of applicable to bitcoin so the i think the point is the the full collision we know how to do it it's just too expensive and so to make it simpler faster and tunably expensive it's almost definition change right so we're saying okay we we give up we're not going to find a full collision it's yeah. far too expensive. But how about if we find a partial collision where you know the first 10 bits or 20 bits are by chance all zero? And so that's what I did. And I mean, you know, zero is a as good as any number. It could it could be a magic string, it could be anything, but you're you're trying to reach a target and effectively by looping on a hash function, changing a counter in it, you're sort of throwing 256 coins and looking at the ones at the beginning all landed heads. And of course, that's very unlikely the more heads you get, right? But if it's 20, then it's going to take, say, half a second on a CPU at that time. And if you want that to increase, you know, if you want the time, if you want to stay at like a minute of work after computers have doubled in speed, then you're probably going to want to increase it to 21. And so with Hashcash, I, I had a kind of crude graduation of the amount of work. So it would only either double or half, but it's pretty straightforward to make it take one and a half times longer. You just um, put a floating point representation of a number in there and say, is it less than this? And that will do it. And that's, that's what Bitcoin does. So I think how Bitcoin targets the interval is more like um, a control system. It's like a feedback loop, right? So you start the system, you take a guess at a number, you start the system running, and then you measure over a period what is the average time between blocks in this, you know, across this 2000 block period? And you'll say, oh, it's five minutes. I want it to be 10. Let's double the difficulty. That'll fix it, right? 
And if it goes in the other direction, you reduce it. So it's just a control system where you, you measure and adapt, measure and adapt. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Our friends at Corient provide wealth management services centered around you. Corient's goal is to exceed your expectations and simplify your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. They are one of the largest integrated fee-only U.S. registered investment advisors, and Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. The teams at Corient put the collective power of their expertise into building you the custom wealth, investment, and family office solutions that can help you reach your holistic financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, speak with an advisor today at Corient.com. That's spelled C-O-R-I-E-N-T dot com. That's Corient dot com. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So he came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network and the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. You hear all these different narratives. You hear all these different opinions on what's going to work in the long term. You hear a lot of people actually bash Bitcoin because it's using proof of work. And I've always had the opinion, which is the polar opposite of that, that proof of work is the essence of why Bitcoin's going to work because you actually have to perform. If we're using a comparison to gold, you have to actually go out there with your shovel and dig through the earth's crust and perform work in order to find whatever probability per dig. Let's say you got to do 100 digs to find whatever amount of ounces of gold. You have to do that work in the physical realm in order to create value behind what gold is because it's so scarce and hard to find. So why would that be any different when we move into the digital realm that there doesn't have to be some type of work performed in order to create value behind the units that are being mined? When I look at these other protocols and they're not doing these things and they're just there's just this pre-mine or there's this proof of stake and all these other things, to me represents more of what we've already got in today's society with fiat currencies than it does something that is hard, sound, immutable, fungible money. Assuming you agree, but is there anything that you want to add on to that? Or do you believe that proof of work is really required for this to be successful in the long run? Yeah, I think so. And I think that economic game theory is counterintuitive, even to people with background in, in economics, right? So 
There are some very interesting effects here. So, I mean, one thing that I think there's, you know, if, you, if you scroll through Satoshi's old writings, he had said something like, yes, it uses electricity, but as with gold, it's far more efficient to the world to have a hard money versus the kind of slippage and churn that happens when you have political money. And then another comment I've heard is Paul Stortz made the observation that there is an economic incentive to obtain money. And so people are willing to expand up to the uh, commodity cost to obtain it. And if there is no clean cost, that effort will be expended in other ways, i.e. in political lobbying, favoritism, audits, physical bank security, cross-checks, controls, theft, insider double dealing, inefficient political systems. So we haven't saved a thing. What we've done is we've had a messy, uneven playing field. I think another thing that's interesting is Eric Vosquil had a discussion with him where I concluded that actually he was right in some degree that people look at, they look at the world as if a cost arose ab initio, but there's no cost that doesn't have an alternative. So, you know, they say, well, the electricity was used to mine Bitcoin. Okay. But there was a foregone alternative, right? Instead of mining the Bitcoin, maybe they would have engaged in some other consumerish behavior. They would have bought a car. And so no energy was solved. You know, maybe Bitcoin is probably actually reducing a number of pollutive and carbon producing things in the world. For example, it's clearly reducing gold mining because I think people are starting to realize that gold prices will probably be higher if Bitcoin was not monetizing in the alternative. And gold, you know, gold mining is extremely industrial and chemical process. So I think that there is probably some necessary inevitability for the production of money to have, or of a hard money to have an actual economic cost. So Adam, when, when we think about this, and whenever I'm looking at the price curve, the thing I just keep coming back to, and the thing I keep asking myself is how in the world because here I am, I'm a finance guy. I'm looking at stocks. I love stock investing. And I've never in my life seen a price chart that looks like Bitcoin. I've never seen something that almost looks like it grinds and has like this perfect shape on the bottom of the price chart over a 10-year period of time. And I know a lot of people in the community don't like to necessarily call it that it looks like Metcalf's Law for various reasons because you're comparing something that's a little bit different. But when you look at that price chart and you look at it in log terms, it looks like Metcalf's Law playing out in real time, but it's a price chart. And I'm telling myself, okay, what in the hell is driving this to happen? There's something mechanically that's happening in the code that's causing this to play out. And the only thing that I can arrive at is because when you look at the, the, these peaks that happen in the price action, it doesn't seem like it's bound. It looks like it, it's, it's more emotional. But when you look at the floor of the price action, there's these moments where it almost seems like, like it's just grinding through something that's forcing it to go up. And so the only thing that I can come to, the realization, and I go back, there's, a, there's an awesome book called The Book of Satoshi that I've read, and it's pretty much all of Satoshi's writings that was pulled from online. And one of the quotes in there that really stuck with me is he really gets into something that you just described, which is this labor theory of value might actually be playing out 
with Bitcoin. And, and you talk to any economist and they'll roll their eyes at this labor theory of value. They'll say that's clearly not something that actually works in reality, especially when you get into specialized services, like say you're a doctor or whatever, like that's just not something that's applicable. But I think when you look at Bitcoin and you look at the mining process and you look at how commoditized the mining process is and how competitive it is, it's really kind of the electrical cost to mine these things that's setting the price floor, especially when you look at the scarcity that, that keeps getting tighter and tighter, like a noose around, like a collar around a dog that just keeps getting tighter and tighter every four years. So this is my question. Is proof of work driving this price floor because of the electrical costs that are associated with the flow of Bitcoin that's, that's being dropped into the market and how much tighter it gets every four years? I think the complete inelasticity of the supply curve is interesting, right? Because if you look at any other commodity, the uh, people who are extracting the ore or producing the, the finished product are going to react to market conditions. If, if the price of gold is up, they'll reopen mines that are, have an expensive per gram production cost. They'll work shifts. People will like recycle, reclaim gold from electronics. and Everything will ramp up to the max. It takes the edge off the price increase a little bit. And similarly, if the price is depressed, they'll shut everything down and it will provide some, it'll take some edge out of the selling because there's less to be bought as well. Bitcoin in comparison, you know, people say Bitcoin doesn't care, which is uh, more insightful than it sounds, right? But it, uh, it kind of applies here too, right? It's like the prices up, Bitcoin doesn't know that actually. So it just keeps producing coins. And the miners, of course, they will chase a higher cost by being economically incentivized to bring more miners online and so forth. It's an interesting question, to what extent miners sell coins to pay electricity bills? and you know, at Blockstream and me personally as well, have been doing mining for you know, about five years now. And the conclusion is that it's better like, backtested, like uh, dispassionately backtested. It's just a better financial strategy to hold the coins and not sell them. People will say, well, how could you do that? Like, where does the money come from? And I say, well, look, you're you're about to invest some dollars in mining. Some of that's going to go into equipment and some of it's going to go into electricity. So if you've got $100,000 or a million dollars, calculate the ratio between the equipment and the electricity you'll need to run it for three years. And instead of you know, spending all of your money on miners and then saying, oh no, I have no money left. I'm going to sell the coins to pay for electricity. You're better off to mine at, let's say, half the size, where you've got half the money set aside to pay the electricity bills. And you can talk about more why that is, but basically, I think that mining has some downside protection as compared to buying. So buying and holding is very sensitive to the entry price, and that, that catches new people. They look at the price and like, well, I've been hearing about it. It's in the news again. I want to get a bit, establish a Bitcoin position, but now is this a good price? You know, should I wait for it to fall? Will it just go up? <laughs> so they, they get frozen <laughs> in, in decision, right? And so, so with mining, it's interesting because you don't care as much about what happens. If the price goes up rapidly, you tend to get a derivative benefit because there'll be a shortage of miners or people can't manufacture new miners fast enough to bring them online. So you'll get a kind of derivative premium for a while until that catches up. And that's, that's the current state of the market, really. So 
Last year, minor sales were kind of weak, but this year it's really hard to acquire new miners without very long forward delivery dates. And if you started mining and the price falls, you would think that's bad. But actually, what tends to happen is price is falling. And so some miners will switch off because they fall below their break even. And so as that falls, if you, if you are, if you keep mining, you know, you've got a cost basis that allows you to keep mining or you've pre-funded the, the investment, right? You've got the, the capital to pay for the electricity and you're going to mine through it. Obviously, you're not going to mine below the cost of buying Bitcoin with electricity. That wouldn't make sense. But there's a big hysteresis between equipment break-even and the initial investment. So that's, that's typically fairly far off. So you end up mining more coins than you expect through the bottom of the market. And then well, let's say the market recovers somewhat. So we did one coincidentally where when we started, the Bitcoin price was around $15,000. If you had bought, that would have been your entry price. And, and when we finished, when these machines reached end of life, the price was about 7500 And so if you bought and hold, you'd have made a 50% loss in cash terms, Bitcoin. But with mining, we ended up making a 25% profit in dollars. And you wonder like, well, how could that be? And so you, you go back, test a bunch of things and try and figure out the pattern of what's going on here. And the point was price fell all the way down to 3,500, which gives you an indication of this period. And you mined a lot of coins at prices below 3,500 because you know, you're generally mining at a discount or you stop. And then the price recovered to 7,500. And that was enough to push us into you know, the discount on the mining, plus the fact that we got more coins than we expected because the price really fell a long way in the middle of it. So I think generally what you see is it, it's less sensitive to entry price or timing. You have some downside protection. You still have a fairly good upside participation. Like we've seen across the periods we backtested, it averaged about 60% upside participation as compared to buying, just buying and holding Bitcoin. So for the trade-off, I think you know, that's, that's an interesting trade-off better than being frozen in indecision, let's say, right? For people who are new to Bitcoin or looking to establish a position. When you say 60% upside, that's on an annualized basis? No, sort of absolute return across a three-year period. I mean, of course, there are many periods where buying and holding outperforms. I mean, Bitcoin's price history is nothing but exponential, but it's, it's also volatile. So the point being that you experience less volatility by doing mining. And there are people you could say, well, you know, look, uh, Bitcoin has performed well over all three previous X year periods, right? And that would be statistically the case, but that's still unnerving prospects for people who are not used to Bitcoin, haven't adapted, right? I mean, we've both you know, participated in different conventional markets and there's enough volatility in those, but, but Bitcoin at times takes that to a whole different level, right? So I think that the reduced volatility of mining versus buying and the prospect that there's downside protection and some upside participation, go pretty reasonable upside participation at 60% statistically, is uh, something less scary than full Bitcoin. Of course, some people would you know, do a mixture. And other than newcomers who don't have a Bitcoin position, the other type of investors we've seen be interested to, to do this are people who actually are, are very deep in Bitcoin, almost felt overexposed to Bitcoin. And so they had some dollars and were interested to do something Bitcoin correlated, but with more downside protection. And yeah. so that 
that made sense to them as well, but for a very different reason. I think another reason to do mining is, as we were talking about earlier, Bitcoin gets some of its value from being permissionless and decentralized. And so if mining becomes too centralized, that could expose it to governance-like risks, right? And so I think if you look at the Bitcoin market cap and you work out what it would take invested in mining, what percentage of that it would take to on an individual basis or on a, on a whole system basis, it's only a couple of percentage points of the, let's say, one trillion in in market cap as composed to a handful of billions in mining equipment and electrical spend. So, you know, one approach and that that's that was my personal philosophical point of of jumping into doing some mining on more than a hobby basis myself was, well, maybe I should be part of the solution and, <laughs> and operate some of the mine. I mean not not physically hand on, but you know, have a they're my miners, so I can say if something dramatic is happening, I can instruct the service provider, look, I want you to do this with my miners and they're going to do it. That's an interesting point. And I just want to kind of summarize, especially for a lot of the finance and investing types that are listening to this. In short, what you're really getting at is this is giving you a better sharp ratio by investing because you don't have as much volatility. And you're saying that over a three-year period of time, you have demonstrated through backtesting, which doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be what it is moving forward, that you've had a 60% outperformance. So if you're having less variance in your price, and you're having an outperformance, that's going to give you a higher sharp ratio than if you would just buy the underlying. And that's something to be said, because when we look at the sharp ratio on Bitcoin, and I know the sharp ratio I've looked at is over four-year periods, but it has literally outperformed everything, financial, every financial asset on the planet over the last uh, 10 years, um, right. which is something to be said. So that's, that's a really interesting stat. Well, I mean, I would say what you said is accurate, but I would emphasize that the expected return is lower by mining, but a sharp ratio measuring the trade-off between investment return and volatility, it has reduced your volatility by more than it has reduced your return. Yeah. And maybe that's attractive to some people or they'd like a little bit of a lower risk. Of course, the other thing you obvious thing you can do with risk, which is which is the way some people talk about Bitcoin for newcomers, is to say, well, by one to five percent from the point of view, you know, your stock portfolio is moving around, you're uncertain about lots of factors in today's world. So what is what's the worst that can happen? You could lose one to five percent. And looking at the other factors you're looking at, including M2 money supply expansion and probable double digit asset price inflation. Trying something for at a one to five percent ratio that may improve that. It's just an asset allocation, you know, mixing a high sharp ratio asset with high higher volatility. It may repair your returns if things go badly. So that's that's another thing. Just just asset. I mean, portfolio allocation. So Adam, what are you guys doing from a block stream lever? Is this all internal as far as just? You're using your own retained earnings in order to invest in this. Is this something you're going to open up to the market that people can participate in it with you as well through equity or through debt somehow? What's your approach moving forward for this? How we started was sort of about 50-50 internal investment, use of uh, companies' cash reserves, and actually converted a bunch of US dollars into Bitcoin. So uh, Bitcoin holdings increased through that. And the other was hosting for high net worth individuals and institutions. So there were uh, Reid Hoffman as an individual, 
and Fidelity was one of the uh, hosting customers, and there have been more that have been announced over time. So a number of the recognized brand name institutions in this space who are doing mining, many of them don't have physical operations, so they will host equipment to us. Uh, something else we've had, you know, we're, we're interested in decentralization and us doing some sort of institutional and in-company mining is a form of macro decentralization, right? We're doing it in Canada or the US. We're a new voice. So, you know, if there are 50 institutional miners instead of 49, that's a small amount of decentralization, but, you know, it's, no, it's not very end user decentralized. And so we have seen a lot of ongoing requests from individuals to say, hey, can I, can I buy $10,000 worth of mining or can I buy $100,000 worth of mining? And that was something that we were interested to do, but weren't set up to do at the beginning. So we set about trying to address that problem and meet that demand. So more recently, we have uh, offered something called the Blockstream Mining Note, which tries to do that. Now, on a regulatory basis, it's only available to non-US investors. And there's a qualification criteria, which where the minimum investment has to exceed 125,000 euros. Again, this is for non-US investors. But you know, it, it does bring the barrier down. Adam, just for clarification, you said it's a note? Yeah. So it's, it's actually, I think it's the first of its kind, actually. The, we worked with a company called Stocker in Europe that is a kind of regulatory specialist, and they are the registration agent for this. It's a Luxembourg securitization vehicle. And so it's, it has a foot in both worlds. So it's both a Luxembourg securitization vehicle with a, an ISIN, an investment serial number. And so, you know, you could potentially give that to a broker that deals with, you know, a longer tail of assets and say, how oh, can you can you hold this as part of my portfolio? Can you margin lend against it? That kind of thing is all possible if you have a more bespoke brokerage. But it's also <clears throat> an asset in a cryptocurrency tokenization sense. So it's a, a liquid security token. So it's a, an STO. I right? love it. And yeah. <laughs> this is awesome. Okay. So the security token means, I mean, it all implies some quite interesting things for you know, people who are able to, to access it regulatorily. One is that you can potentially transfer it OTC. So after the issuance phase, there are some different limits that apply later. So it can be transferred down to 0.01, but only to qualifying users. And to be a qualifying user, the user has to register on Stocker and they are the registration agent for these transfers, but there's no kind of conventional stock transfer agent fee, only kind of network fees, which are de minimis. And so you could gift somebody a BMN or part of a BMN, you could swap it OTC and there are, you know, smartphone wallets that let you do that. So it's kind of private OTC scenario. And uh, there are some exchanges which we are working with that may end up being in a position to list STOs going forwards. And so in that sense, they would be a kind of nominee ombudsman holder of these notes. So the notes of the registration agent would be in the name of that exchange. And then the exchange would reflect the qualification requirements onto the users. So it'd be accessible to a subset of the users, i.e. not in the US and reaching some level. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. 
And iFlex Stretch Studio Franchise offers its clients the best in professional-assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joint's range of motion, helping you move more freely. Prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast. Don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of The Joint Chiropractic. Find out more today. Call 888-994-3500. 539 or visit iflexpodcast.com. Call right now, 888-994-3539 or visit iflexpodcast.com. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. All right, back to the show. All right, so I have a million questions here. So you said that it's through Stalker that you're registering for your ownership of the note, which is a token on liquid. How is the maturity of this? And, and is there a coupon? Is it coupon-less? I'm assuming it's would this be a, there would be no coupon being paid. You would just get a kind of a payout at the maturity date. Right. So we, we had some quite a bit of uh, internal design discussion about the, the mechanism, jurisdiction, tax planning. So there's, there's quite a lot that goes into this, but yes, yeah, so it, it's coupon less. So there's no Bitcoin being dividended out of it. So the Bitcoins roll up inside until maturity and then they're paid out in Bitcoin to the holder. On the, at the time of uh, maturity. So you hold this token. What's the maturity on these? 36 months. 36 months. So I could buy it 12 months after it's already been issued for whatever price it's trading for on the open market. And then uh, I hold it. Let's say I hold it through maturity. At that time, the token just disappears and Bitcoin shows up in a wallet that's registered with that specific token. Is that how that would work? Yeah. If it's on an exchange, they will probably take care of that for you. If you are holding it in a wallet, you'd probably need to go to Stocker and you know deposit the token and turn it in. Put a Bitcoin, put yeah. a Bitcoin address, kind of like you know having a oil future. You got to take delivery at the end, right? 
So now are, are you guys going to go through just one issuance? Or are you going to go through multiple issuances to just kind of continue funding? And it sounds to me a little bit like what you had previously described, where half of whatever you guys are generating, you're putting into hardware, and then the other half you're retaining as payments for the electrical expenses, which is kind of your maybe derivative strategy in order to make sure that your electrical costs have kind of like a predictable curve to them. Is that how you're kind of going about it from like a strategic sense? Part of that is back-tested, right? So, so we're thinking, based on our own experience, prop mining, that this is a better way to do it economically, as opposed to spending your capital allocation on the miners and then paying as you go or selling Bitcoins as you go. So we put those economics into the note because we want the note holders to have a positive economic outcome so they buy more of them, basically, right? So it's yeah. kind of a win-win formula. And it's exactly like you say. So of course, the, the price is bundled. So how you ascribe value to the cost of the miners versus the remaining duration on a hosting contract is, is a matter for you know, the, uh, the market to decide ultimately. And over time, of course, it's got an additional makeup, which is the number of coins per note. And uh, you know, there's a dashboard where you can see that on a fairly real-time basis. Now, you asked another question, which is, do we issue more? So yes, we are intending to issue about $100 million, so 85 million euros of, the, of this series. And they are, so even though they're issued at different times, we do some clever things to achieve fungibility between them so that they are you know, all interchangeable and you shouldn't care as an investor whether you bought an early sales tranche versus a later sales tranche versus in the market. And that's, that's quite interesting to actually achieve because you know, these, this first 12.5 million sales tranche is power update early July. And let's say there's another tranche that sold in September. For that to be equal, it has to have a 33-month hosting contract, and we have to market by the number of coins per note that the, the miners that have already been running have achieved, right? And so that's, that's what we do. So I would think that you would do it in a way where, let's say you have your first tranche, whatever you raise through that initial tranche, that has dedicated servers that are basically partitioned saying, hey, this amount of processing power is dedicated to this tranche of funding. And then as the next tranche comes in, whatever servers that are associated, I'm saying servers, but really kind of processing power and terahashes or whatever it might be, is dedicated to this tranche of, of funding. Am I understanding it correctly that that's how it's, how it's being managed? So, it's, so no, it's, it's actually all interchangeable once, think about it like pool of capital that's mining and there's a certain economic makeup of the per note value. So let's say it's August. They've been running for a while. There's a certain proportion of Bitcoin per note. There's now not 36, but 35 months left to run on the contract. So the, you know, the value of the hosting contract has gone down a bit. The Bitcoin have a market value and the machines have you know, some depreciation scale of value. right? And now it rolls over to September and we want to add some more notes, which are interchangeable with the running notes. And so what we do is try to match the economic characteristics of the existing notes. So we say, okay, let's look at the makeup. It has a defined number of Bitcoin. We can fix that. We just go market buy that many Bitcoin. It has 35 months left to run on the hosting contract. We'll give it a 35-month contract. Sorry, oh, I, see how you, contract. I see how you're doing it. 
And then machines should be comparable, right? But it's it's defined in terms of hash rate. So even if you know these machine shortages mean that sometimes you want to take what you can get, right? So if the machines that come online are 42 joules instead of 38, like they're less efficient, it's still fungible because the definition is in the hash rate target of what it's producing, right? So it will mean that you know maybe we pay slightly less for the machines, but expend slightly more power. But it's still interchangeable because the finished product is is the hash rate you get from it. But at any point in time, post the initial issuance, let's say we're three months into the into the ownership of this, I can look at how much Bitcoin has been mined that's associated with that note. Is that correct? Right, and it's actually the same for all of the notes because it's kind of uh, harmonized. You know, there's, there's a yeah. pool of hash rate, so it's averaged. But there is a defined. This is how many coins have been mined per note, or in aggregate, and this is how many notes there are. And you know, another question people ask is, well, what if I want to sell the coins? You know, because I can't extract them. And so you can sort of synthesize the equivalence of there being a Bitcoin coupon by, you know, if you have additional oh, yeah. Bitcoins outside, yeah. you could just sell those instead. <laughs> Something else you could do, you know, we were talking earlier about uh, yield strategies, is you could, assuming there are exchanges which honor the BMN notes as collateral, you could short Bitcoin using it as collateral to the tune of the number of coins per note. And that would even, you know, that would be equivalent to selling, right? Because it would lock in a dollar value, plus it would give you a yield typically resulting from, you know, kind of um, Bitcoin perpetual products, right? Wow. So this is, this is just, this is such an interesting approach and it's so much different than participating in a mining pool or just going out and buying equity in a, in a mining company. It really has a feel that you are really participating in the funding of hardware and then getting the kickback of whatever that hardware is pumping out. Fascinating. I'm really curious, why not in the US? I think I know the answer that you're going to say, but I'm curious, what's the reason that you were not able to do this in the US? We may be able to in future. It's just there are different regulatory requirements and that's, that's further, further process. And I, mean, I think the other, the other, so you mentioned a couple of things there. One is that you are not you know, buying shares in a mining company. So this is more like a non-discretionary financial instrument. So that you're not relying on some management discretionary decision. If you put money into buying shares in a prop mining company, now you are you know, exposed to, well, did they make a good decision? Did they decide to use your money to expand a farm over there? Or you know, sell some coins to dollars because the price is falling, or pay out a management bonus, or pay out a dividend, or not. There's none of that stuff applies, right? It's all non-discretionary. Define what's happening. There's there's uh, you know extremely thin deterministic behavior, and it's uh, you know, it's kind of like a Bitcoin ETF, but it's kind of like I mean, it's not an ETF, but it's it's something in that direction where there's a defined thing that does something very thinly managed. I'm kind of curious. So let's just say I, I buy $1,000 worth of this note. When are you expecting over that three-year time frame for the person to break even on the principal of the $1,000 based on yeah, backtesting? So yes. Yeah, so I think obviously it's difficult because there are so many exponentials that go into the Bitcoin world, you know, yeah, exponential yeah. price, the high volatility, the hash rate is is prone to like really uh, actually even exceed price because because you've also got a factor of uh, more modern equipment 
being developed over time that, that has a higher hash rate per joule. So I think you know one one thing we can do is look at the back testing with a caveat that the future doesn't doesn't guarantee that and say that you know it, it hasn't lost money over previous three year periods that it has this sixty percent upside participation as compared to buy and holding. But what is very defined is the short term because Bitcoin has a fully liquid market price. The current difficulty is you can look at it; that's verifiable. And you can infer from that what your you know, mined Bitcoin revenue would be. So for notes, the list price of the note, of course, that, that may change based on the inputs later, is 200,000 euros. So that's actually the minimum investment. And if it were running now, I would say that would produce about 20,000 euros per month. So it's if the metrics went such that it was straight line, you would see a break even at 12 months. Yeah, about a year. And that's intuitively, that's kind of what I was expecting to, to hear you say. It was about a, at a year time frame. Right. And so, of course, it can, it's, you know, it all depends. It's not as, it's not <laughs> as volatile as Bitcoin, but it's still volatile. So you've got to like buckle up going into these things, right? And yeah. uh, that can go both directions, right? So if you scroll forward to some of these stock to flow derived, Price targets or just price targets people have thrown out, or comparators between previous halving lows and highs or cycle lows and highs, $300,000 price into next year. Of course, the profitability is going to be through the roof because nobody can manufacture that amount of equipment in that time frame. Like there isn't enough foundry capacity in the world if you manage to, you know, seize all the capacity that's being used to build smartphone chips and so forth, which is hard to, hard to compete with in terms of their command of capacity, basically. But of course, if that were to happen, I think it's fair to say you, you would have done even better if you just bought Bitcoin and held it now, right? But you know, in the alternative, there are certainly people looking at the market now and saying, wow, $60,000 is a high price. So I'm scared to buy. And, and yeah, they get stuck yeah. in the indecision cycle. So now as an alternative to that, I think it's a, it's a pretty reasonable trade-off. I'm kind of curious on the stalker thing. Are they doing this with equity as well, where they're assisting in the issuance of tokens for equity? Yeah, so they uh, they are a a company that specialises in that area. So they do the KYC. They are a Luxembourg securitization like licensed Luxembourg securitization manager. I don't know all the correct terminology, but they're they're experts in that domain. And they do fundraisers for these kind of. I think it's called a non-public investment in in the Europe. And so one they did is for a supercar called Mozanti. So it's an Italian kind of bespoke custom supercar company that's equity in the company or something like that, or equity or proportion of revenue, something I didn't look into all the details, but they are doing things like that. Another one is Infinite Fleet. Yeah, Samson was telling us about this. So that's how he's doing it is through, okay, it makes sense now. Okay, so let's transition to real fast here. And I know your time is limited and I want to be respectful of that. I just want to hear what is the biggest news you've seen this year or something that really kind of just kind of made you go, oh, wow. It seems like the, the metrics and institutional sort of almost stampede to participate is you know, there's something new every day or two, right? Big fund managers, big banks, where the CEOs have been skeptical. It's just um, the right demand, right? They're writing stock yeah. to flow uh, <laughs> charts now from Fidelity. Yeah, so that's that's kind of interesting to see. I mean, of course, the the adoption level is still fairly low. 
the Treasury uh, disclosures are interesting too, that Michael Saylor kind of encouraged people to do. I mean, it's something we've actually been doing since you know, 2014, which is when we were incorporated. So, and that, but, you know, that, that obviously works pretty well, right? We got the equivalent of probably a couple of rounds of investment through Bitcoin uh, price appreciation and invested dollars into mining. That was also highly profitable in, in dollar terms and putting more Bitcoin on the balance sheet. So I think it's an interesting sort of precursor to transitioning to a uh, Bitcoin monetary base if that happens, or, or at least a kind of alternative store of value, right? Because nobody, I think sometimes people overemphasize that fiat currencies have fallen, even the best of them, 99% over a 100-year time frame, right? But nobody in the investment space says you should put you know, cash under the mattress, right? So it's not really a useful comparison. So I think maybe gold is, a, is an interesting comparison. And Bitcoin may, I guess, in the long term, do a little better than gold, even at the top of an S curve, you know, after fully adopted, whatever level that is, you know, if that's 100 trillion or 200 trillion, five to 10 million a coin, even then, because the, um, you know, having displaced lots of different sort of artificially monetized goods, like, you know, stocks, real estate, artwork, gold, things where people are not buying it for the enjoyment of it, but they're buying it to preserve capital or to in the expectation of price appreciation by other people seeking to do the same thing. So even in that case, I think it would outperform gold because it's it's uh, strictly scarce where you know there's always more gold. So the supply inflation should taper off to well below gold, I guess is my point. Just the sequence of positive news is just really keeps keeps going. That's pretty interesting. So you and I have exchanged some messages with plan B in the background about this contango trade. And what I find fascinating is you're seeing this pretty much only materialize or these spreads, these large spreads between the spot and the future price materialize on physically settled exchanges. When you get into the cash settled exchanges, it doesn't seem like that this is happening. But with the size of some of these physically settled derivatives exchanges all over the world, which are massive, billions and billions in, in size, what is causing this? Is this going to continue to persist, especially as the volatility gets larger as we go through this bull market we're in? And does that cause the spread to even blow out larger than what we're seeing right now? The locking up of, of coins on the physically settled exchange, is this almost like a second halving kind of event that's playing out in real time? Like, Give us some of your thoughts on this. I think it's a kind of submarine issue to many people. Well, not issue. I mean, it, it's a positive driver, but it's not something that they would be that be visible to them necessarily because it's kind of wrapped up in you know some kind of advanced trading strategies, and you know it's kind of mysterious. But it seems like it actually has the potential to be a kind of uh, Bitcoin monetization driver because people who are not even interested in Bitcoin can get an extremely high US dollar interest return. 30, 40%. Yeah, completely Bitcoin neutral. And so, you know, of course, once they realize that this is the case and that they can do these, take these kind of matched positions on increasingly high tier platforms, more and more money will flow into that. So, one theory could be that, and of course, there's enormous pools of money outside of the crypto space. Buying thirty-year bonds at negative rates and things like that, right? So, <laughs> so there's like a lot of money out there. So you you would think that once the dam breaks, 
and it flows in, the yields would slow down. But I think the problem is that it's um, the universe expanding. So, so when you say that, intuitively, I agree with you. But in order for them to continue to participate, they're locking up more of the underlying as they come in and try to chase those spreads. And so if they're locking up more of the underlying, they're clawing it off the market, which is almost like it's supplying another halving or supply suffocation of the underlying coins. Because the only way that you can do these these positions is you've got to put them in escrow, the underlying. Right. Yeah. So so I think there's some positive reinforcement loop where it's a mistake to think that, you know, let's say there's $4 trillion of demand to borrow dollars. And so, you know, there's only, let's say, half a trillion that is extant on crypto trading platforms. And so, you know, this, this is sort of demand to go leverage long because many, you know, the people that are in Bitcoin generally want more Bitcoin or regret former conservatism. And so, and of course, there are speculators too, but, you know, there's clearly a high demand for leverage. And as there's a shortage of it, they bid the price up. And, and the problem is basically that people who are, have dollars on crypto exchanges would generally be inclined to market by Bitcoin and hold it. So the only way you can persuade them to lend it to you is to bid the price up. And there's, you know, there's an oversubscription for that. And so you would say, well, you know, the, there's, there's so much demand now. There's more than that money outside the ecosystem. Once they overcome, there are many platforms where you can't count physical Bitcoin as collateral. So you've got to use other collateral. So that takes, you know, takes some of the fun out of it. But, but as you said, I think the, <laughs> the thing is that it's, it's not a stationary picture because it's also as more money flows in, it satisfies the demand to buy more Bitcoin and pushes the price up, locks up the physical Bitcoin for these yield strategies, which is you know, more scarcity. Somebody wants to institutionally buy Bitcoin, where are they going to go, right? Is it a perpetual machine? Once you get a physically settled derivatives market that's mature in place, that's the question I'm toying with. I have no clue what the answer is. And I don't know that there's any way that we could solve or or say conclusively that that's what this is. But in a weird way, it's kind of looking like that's what's potentially the case here. Yeah. I mean, it does seem like there's some kind of hyper-Bitcoinization aspect to this, which is it's just a self-feeding monster that wants to absorb all the money. And so basically what it's doing is it's just you know shifting the Bitcoin dollar exchange rate. As that changes, it can absorb more money because now the price of Bitcoin is higher. So it, it's not $4 trillion and it's $8 trillion and it's $20 trillion. And before you know it, you, know, you have full-scale global hyper-Bitcoinization or something. So We'll see how it plays. And, you know, the I mean, one interesting part about it though is that unlike the, you know, the kind of trader psychology that goes into pullbacks and during a growth cycle like we're in now, there have typically been like a dozen, 10, 20, even 30 percent pullbacks on the way across, you know, a hundred X growth period or something, which we've seen in the past. And so, you know, people have to become accustomed to that. Some people panic sell or make other mistakes, over leverage, that kind of thing. But with the yield strategies, you're, you're immune to that. These are, you know, largely immune to volatility. So long as the platform you're using is solvent, doesn't get hacked. And so that's, that's where more mature platforms coming into play helps. Then 
what's not to like about the yield in this environment? And so there, there's a reason for people to buy Bitcoin to collateralize the, the yield, the dollar yield collection. And so you know, they don't even directly care about the price. I mean, it's 10x, at least 10x right now on an annualized basis of what they're getting on any type of traditional government-issued long-term bond. 10x. It's crazy. Right. Well, Adam, I could literally talk to you all day. Thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. And I really want to do this again because when I posted that I was going to be talking to you on Twitter, I think I had three or 400 people send me questions as to what they wanted us to talk about. So I would really enjoy if we could get back on and hammer through some of those questions if, if you're up to it. But either way, man, I am so excited and, and just want to thank you for your time to come on today. Well, thanks for having me on. And let's, uh, let's indeed do that. Go through some interesting questions. <laughs> there was a lot of interesting questions there. Yes, sir. All right. Well, hey, we'll do this again. And thank you for your time today. All right. Thank you. Hey, so thanks for everybody listening into the show. If you enjoyed the conversation, be sure to subscribe to the show on whatever podcast app you're using. We really appreciate that. And if you have time, leave us a review. So thanks for joining us this week and we'll catch you next Wednesday. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.